Welcome to Keep It Fictional, a weekly podcast for book lovers by book lovers. Build your to-be-read list with Sadie, Liz, Virginia, Fiona, and Kareen from the Port Moody Public Library. Warning, this podcast contains strong opinions and may cause an increase in your library holds list. Right. Welcome, everyone, to Keep It Fictional, a podcast for book lovers by book lovers. We are coming to you from the Port Moody Public Library. I am chief book lover in charge today, Kareen, and I am joined by my fellow book friends, Sadie, Mark, Virginia, and Gabriel. And we are recording this on February 3rd. We are three days into Black History Month. So, Canada's Black History Month, the 2023 theme, is Hours to Tell. It encourages people to learn more about the history, sacrifices, and triumphs of the Black communities in Canada. And I think that it is very important as Canadians that we spend some time in all of the months, um, both learning the histories and stories of the Black community in Canada, as we tend to think of it as a modern development. But in fact, there have been Black communities in British Columbia since 1858. I would encourage everyone to spend some time on a fantastic website and resource, the BC Black History Awareness Society, Our Roots Run Deep, which have a wealth of resources of histories and biographies and movies and documentaries about the Black community, specifically in British Columbia. There are fantastic resources for teachers, for parents, and just for interested people who really don't know the story of this community in British Columbia and largely in Canada because it is never talked about or acknowledged in the same way that the white community is. So the history of Black History Month is also very interesting. It was actually founded in 1926. The birth of it was by Carter C. Woodson, who chose February because it was both the birthday of Abraham Lincoln and Frederick Douglass. So considering the importance of these two figures, he wanted to have a celebration of the history of the Black community in America. Black newspapers really championed this idea of telling the history and educating both the Black community and the white community about their achievements and successes. In the 1930s, this kind of crystallized around making sure that there was an accurate representation of the Black experience in America in direct response to the movie and the novel Gone with the Wind. They saw and recognized the danger of history being rewritten, this myth of the South's lost cause, and that enslaved people were somehow better off under slavery than they were to be free, and that the Civil War was this war of Northern aggression. So Black History Month has always been about peeling back that layer of white supremacy and looking honestly and truthfully at the real history. So Black educators at Kent State University were the next ones to kind of champion this cause in February of 1969. And in 1976, President Gerald Ford declared this as a celebration of Black History Month in February. Now, in Canada, this has actually been a fairly recent development. It was only in 1995 that a motion by Jean-Augustine recognized and crystallized Black History Month as a celebration in Canada. Now, Black History Month is just a part of this celebration. As N.K. Jemison asks in her fantastic collection of short stories, how long till Black Future Month? So while it is important to look at the past, you also need to look at the future and what your place is it is in ensuring and celebrating Black voices in it. So as part of these celebrations, we are choosing five excellent books by Black authors to celebrate on our podcast and share with you today. But as we always like to say, these books do not just need to be for February. There are year-round, there are fantastic Black authors who write in every genre, in every way. And if you just take a look, you are going to find some fantastic new favorite reads, and we hope that you share five of ours. So I am going to turn over to Mark to share our first book. So today I will be talking about Jolof Rice and Other Revolutions by Omolola Ijeoma Ogunyemi. 
Ogunyemi is originally trained as a biomedical informatician, which essentially means she studies how people interact with medical information to come up with insights that change medical practice. Even though she's been in this practice for quite a while, she's been writing short stories on the side since 2007. The very first story in this collection she actually wrote in 2007 and was published way back then. But just now, it's the first time she's published a full collection of short stories. And it's her first uh, published book as well, I believe. While she's sort of come to writing later on, she's been very much a fan of literature for a very long time. Her mother was a professor of African and African-American literature at the University of Ibadan in Nigeria. So she grew up in a home that was filled with like lots of the classic works of literature. And she, from a very young age, was reading authors like James Baldwin, Chinua Achebe, and Toni Morrison are all sources that she's pointed to as being very influential in her childhood as she came to these works. She currently lives in Los Angeles, where she teaches and writes. And much like herself, a lot of her characters in her stories are uh, Nigerian women who are either living in the diaspora or currently live in Nigeria. But she definitely does seem to be drawing on her own experiences, her own culture, and other things in the stories that she writes. And in these stories, it starts very early on in the year of 1897. But the very last story actually takes place in the distant future of 2050, or maybe not so distant future, near future 2050. So the stories themselves do take a very long time arc. And even kind of as Kareen was just saying, when is Black Future Month? Well, there's a little bit of the future in this collection as well as the past and the present. So it's got like a very longer kind of scope and view of how the different generations blend into one another, how different ideas and parts of culture are very much continuous over a long period of time. And so in the very first story, Photos Better Half, it begins in the February of the year 1897, as the Kingdom of Benin is looted and burned by British soldiers. A husband and wife escape the city as their daughter is born into this world on this day that their homeland is laid siege to by colonial powers, and they are left to build a new life in the aftermath in this new land that has sort of been renamed and built by a colonial power of the British. Spanning the next four decades into the late 1930s, we witness the beginning of changes to society as it become known as Nigeria, the changing powers of family life, child rearing, religion, language, and the countless sort of other details through the eyes of Ada Oma, the girl that was born that day in February of 1897, and her future husband, Photo. While this story sort of takes place 50 years before all the other stories in the collection, most of the others take place sort of within the years 1980 to 2005, 2010-ish. So it kind of has a late 20th century, the early 21st century feel to it. But I still feel like it's very important to have this story here because it sort of shows the very beginning of where this country that currently is known as Nigeria came from. The different kind of ways of life that were present at that time, how they may contrast to the present, but are very much still unique to these characters, that the characters remember that this was their history and where they came from. All the following stories feature four girls in particular, Remy, Nonso, Salape, and Aisha, in various stages of their life and with different members of the family, romantic relations, and together as a group of close friends. And I'm just going to sort of give you an idea of what some of these stories are about, just a few of them. So in the title story, Jollof Rice and Other Revolutions, it features Solape, Remy, Nonso, and Aisha as their, the formation of their friendship at boarding school, in which they're sort of fed up with the substandard treatment by their school headmaster, with the recent and unexplained dismissal of two popular science teachers, lower quality meals being served in the cafeterias, and an ever-growing list of issues with how they're treated at this school. This headmaster, though specifically not mentioned to be white, is kind of assumed to be white, most likely, because from their, their name, their way of living in an upscale neighborhood that's separate from the rest of the people at the school. Um, it's quite clear that she's not a member of the community that the girls she's overseen are from. And this sort of leads to kind of an anger and solidarity with one another and leads to a march on the headmaster's home with a group of girls they have rallied to protest outside the home of their headmaster to demand better conditions at their school. When the police are called to disperse those who are not assuaged by promises of more jollof rice and fried meat at lunch hour, um, events occur that will forever change the lives of these four girls and their peers. In another one of the stories, Reflections from the Hood of a Car, takes place in 1993. Now living in New York City, Remy is married to a man named Sagan, a fellow Nigerian living in America. And this story is told from Sagan's perspective as he tries to navigate being Black, male, and an immigrant from a quote-unquote third world country uh, living in America, who is a frequent target of police suspicion, 
and targeted for scrutiny for basically non-existent or trivial reasons. This story very much focuses on the role of policing in the lives of Black Americans and immigrants with constant suspicion and police acting with feelings of like invincibility or impunity towards the people that they are acting out against. On one particular visit to a Nigerian grocer with his cousin in his comparatively nice car while in a lower class part of the neighborhood is evidently enough to be considered a suspect of Grand Theft Auto, sort of embarrassed and angered by the kind of behavior and force that he's subjected to, Sagan is forced to act in silence. And after the incident, can only vent his frustration and humor and derision about the self-importance of the officers who held them down on the hood of their car. Also reflecting on this, he's reminded of the kind of brazenness of officers of the law in Nigeria in his childhood, the way that they would act in, in beating and whipping people. But he's also well aware that no one in Nigeria is under the illusion that the police serve and protect the common people, Whereas in America, there's a culture of reverence and lavishing praise on law enforcement, when in reality, they're just as capable of brutality in the name of, of experience and power as those in Nigeria. In the story of Zakolada, Aisha is visiting Krakow, Poland for a friend's wedding. In this place, she sort of experiences all kinds of connections and reactions based on the color of her skin, such as a young child pointing at her and repeating the word Zakolad uh, over and over again. The word in Polish means chocolate. This is kind of like the way that she is seen by many people, the kind of othering ways of looking at her and her skin color, the agitation of those who dislike her level of knowledge of the Polish language, how she pronounces the words, as she is treated as an outsider by those who seem to view her as some strange person who's out of place around them. Trying to find repose from this kind of feeling of out of placeness, she stops to purchase stamps for letters. She's writing to her friends and family and home in Nigeria, as well as in America. And at the post office, she meets a man named Todd who approaches her with perfect English. They sort of strike up a conversation with each other and she starts to sort of engage with this person, sort of wondering like what she might find in this person. She's in this unwelcoming place. She's suddenly finds someone she's making a connection with and her interest in, is her interest in him simply from a recent breakup with her longtime boyfriend or is there something more to this sudden chance encounter with this person? I'll also mention the final story in the collection, Messenger RNA which I mentioned takes place in the future in the year 2050. It's a somewhat speculative view of Nigeria's future, transformed by religious piety, split down the center of the country into a Christian north and a Muslim south. Gone are the days of traditional spiritual beliefs, speaking in the languages of Igbo or Yoruba or any other African language. In their place are the languages of overseas cultures, primarily those of the former colonizing powers. Missing the days of their favorite foods like yams, beef suya, akara bean cakes, or muamua bean pudding, replaced by more commodified and prepackaged Western kind of block meals and things like that, that you'd find in like a supermarket frozen food aisle or like the kinds of processed foods that have now replaced what would be considered traditional Nigerian food. We also see in this story, each of our protagonists, their families, their children, as they are now in their later years and begin to look towards the ends of their own lives and kind of reflect on what they'll leave behind for the future generations, how their lives were connected with each other, how they made an impact on the world around them. So throughout all of these stories, even when they are separated by continents, time zones, marriage, and other life commitments, each of these four friends have each other in their memories and are in constant contact with each other when possible. And with a story focused on the past at the beginning and a story with a somewhat speculative view of Nigeria, the future in 2050, the collection is very much bookended by the idea that each of these historical periods are not disconnected from one another, that each has led into the next and had importance and influence on events, people, aspects of culture, and ideas that carry on that are adapted or ultimately forgotten over time. The stories definitely aren't trying to come up like a definitive solution to these kinds of issues, but it's very much raising them and kind of showing the complex feelings and relations of the characters are very much related to history, culture, and all these historical inequalities and things like that, they're very much intertwined with one another. And I think the stories do a very good job of showing that. And it has a very kind of solid whole based around the idea of culture, language, connection, friendship, and kinship, and how they sort of like relate to this larger history around them. So if you like stories that could be read as their own standalones or as part of a larger whole, and the novel even has the subtitle, a novel and interlocking story. So even though it's a collection of short stories, you could very much read it as a novel almost. 
or as their own standalones. If you want to pick and choose the stories you're most interested in reading, you can kind of do it both ways. If you like strong and determined characters or just want to know more about the kinds of places, people, and culture of Nigeria and the Nigerian diaspora, then you might also like Jola Frice and Other Revolutions by Omolola Ijioma Ogonyemi. Awesome. Thank you so much, Mark. Um, I feel kind of bad because I think that's a copy from another library because I currently might have our coffee at home. <laughs> um, but I'm definitely returning it soon. Soon. All right. Um, I am going to uh, talk about a book that you have probably heard about before. I'm going very mainstream for this one. In fact, I'm going with an award winner, the winner of the 2022 Scotiabank Giller Prize, as well as one of the best selling books in Canada for the year 2022, and one of CBC's top picks for best fiction of 2022. And as we will talk about, the reviews for this one are a little bit polarizing. So the year is 1929, and we are following Baxter. Baxter is a young Black queer man who works as a sleeping car hoarder. So if we think about the importance of the history of the railways in Canada, one of those stories, one of those stories that often does not get told, is the story of the Black porters or the black railway workers. Working for the railway in the service industry was a way that you could get ahead. You would have a good money, good salary, you would get tips. And so they were an important part of both the beginnings of the black Canadian working class and middle class and of the labor movement. But that's just my deep love of labor movements talking. This is not a story about that at all. This is a story about Baxter, who has been awake forever, forever, forever. And he has just come off a very long ride where for all days and all hours of the night, he has to be available to the white passengers and all of their demands. He has to smile, but not too big. He has to acquiesce to their demands, but within the confines of what he can do as dictated by the sleeping car porter handbook. And he has to do everything like he is an automaton. He is not a person when he is at work. He just click, click, clicks along answering orders. When someone has to drop out from a trip from Montreal to Vancouver, he volunteers because he needs the money. Baxter has been saving up for a very, very long time to fulfill his dream of becoming a dentist. Everyone has different dreams and Baxter is really passionate about teeth really passionate about teeth. In fact, the first thing that he'll probably notice about someone is like the teeth situation. Um, which was scary. Anyways, on this trip from Montreal to Vancouver, Baxter has to be awake the entire time, only catching small snippets of sleep as he goes along. However, the group of passengers on this particular trip are a little bit more unruly than most, all of them carrying their own secrets, their own stories, going out west for their own reasons. When the train is stopped by a mudslide in the middle of the Rockies, all of these histories, all of these stories, all of these secrets come bubbling to the surface, and Baxter is right in the middle of it. Because in one of the latrines, he has found a postcard. A postcard of two men in bed that awakens with him memories and urgings and longings that he probably doesn't want to deal with at work, but he's gotta. So, this book is a piece of historical fiction. It is The Sleeping Car Porter by Suzette Meyer. And when you look at the reviews on Goodreads, you will see that they are very, very polarized. There are people who really enjoyed the book, and there are people who did not. And that is because this is not a straightforward book. This is not a piece of historical fiction in the way that you think it's going to be a piece of historical fiction in the way that a lot of Giller Prize winners are. This is a piece of magical realism, surrealist literary fiction. And so if you know that going in, if you know that there are maybe ghosts and haunted teeth people and like rabbits running around 
I think you're a little bit more prepared for what the author is trying to do because it isn't what you think it is going to be from the description of the back. Baxter is hallucinating, or is he? He might not be. There might actually be teeth ghosts. I am unclear, but what she is trying to achieve is bringing in all of these like supernatural elements and these these really disturbing images to kind of make this this amazingly complex metaphorical story about yourself and not yourself and working in the service industry and everything else. I'm actually going to sum it up with a quote from the author because I don't feel like I can explain it. I don't know that it's a book that can be explained. One of the things that I wanted people to take away from this book is to be nice to people in the service industry. Got that. It's important that Black people become part of the fabric of the history of this country. It gets a little tiring when the only time you talk about it is in February because it's Black History Month. It's every month. It's everywhere. It's all the time, and it's not necessarily about Black pain or suffering or victimhood. The Porters were important in helping to establish a Black middle class, one that had a ton of impact in all kinds of ways, including labor rights. Black history matters every month of the year. And I think that what she set out to do, she really achieves in an interesting way. I like that she didn't do it as a very straightforward piece of historical fiction. She's bringing in so many different elements. And as a novelist, and she's also a a poet, you really get that kind of depth of language. I will totally admit that I went super method on this book and that I read it at like two o'clock in the morning last night when I was also not at my mental best. Also, when I'm tired like Baxter, I tend to see loose. I once took a coat for a seven-foot-tall Victorian widow. It happens. And so I think that if you go into this book knowing what it is, you are really going to enjoy it. I love this book. I thought it was amazing. I think it deserves all the awards. I think she achieves everything that she set out to achieve and then some in such an interesting way. She's there to subvert your expectations. And I was very, very there for it. Two o'clock in the morning, Kareen was very into this. If you go into it looking for a very straightforward historical fiction, you are going to be very disappointed and confused and very, very confused. And I think that when you see some negative reviews of that book, I think it's because people were unaware of what she was trying to do and how she was trying to do it. So I'm warning you now. I'm warning you now. I'm saying you should definitely read this book. It's a fantastic work by a Black queer author. I think she's fantastic and wonderful, and I might actually pick up some of her poetry Maybe I'm still asleep. I don't know. But I definitely encourage you to pick this out. It's such a fantastic way of retelling a story, a very particular story of Black history in Canada that we don't know about that is told in such an interesting way. All right. We are going to shift over to Virginia, who I'm guessing also might have something weird. When do I ever have anything weird? Actually, I don't know. Of course it's weird. What am I saying? So how far are you willing to go to make sure that your child is loved, to make sure that they have the best life they can get, to make sure that they are safe. Our unnamed narrator is a lawyer, one of the very few Black people that work at his law firm, and he's working hard to provide for his family. He's got a plan for his son, Nigel, but that plan requires a lot of money, but it's going to give him the best opportunities in life that he knows that his son deserves. So he's working really hard to climb up that ladder to make as much money as he can so he can pay for this. Well, tonight, he's got a chance. He has been invited to a company's party. And even though nobody is saying it and calling it that, they all know that tonight is what they call Elevation Night. It is the night where the senior partners and all the shareholders, they get together to decide who get promoted. It's a costume party that they're all invited to this giant big mansion. And our unnamed narrator is pretty proud of his costume. He has bought a Roman centurion costume. And he thought like he looks pretty good in it. And this is going to win him some votes. Unfortunately, when he got to the party, he looked around and he realized maybe he has miscalculated. 
He looking at some of his colleagues, his fellow competitors, who's also vying for this promotion. He realized that one of them is dressed like a butler, the other is dressed like a prison inmate, currently giving a foot massage to one of the shareholder. And he loses weight. Those are clothes that people expect to see on people like him. They are familiar. They make people comfortable. But what is he doing in this Roman centurion costume? That doesn't make any sense. And he's, he's kicking himself for making this mistake. He was approached by one of the sh- senior partner, Octavia. And Octavia said to him, you know, I have my eye on you. I think you are perfect for what we need. So I can tell you are questioning your costume tonight. So go upstairs. There's this big room that is full of life-size statues. And they all have costumes from all around the world. So go pick one and get changed and come back down. I'm rooting for you. Well, thank goodness for Octavia. So our narrator went upstairs, look around, pick a costume, got changed. All the while thinking, you know what? If I'm going to win, I have to demonstrate that I am willing to give them exactly what they wanted. So he walked down the stairs in his new costume and the room went silent. Everyone was staring at him. He is now dressed as a Sulu chief with a headdress and wearing nothing but a loincloth. And as he noticed that everybody's watching him, he's like, I guess I better do something. So he started dancing, flapping his arms and legs all around. And as if somebody just snapped their finger and everybody got unfrozen, everybody starts smiling at him. They start dancing along, copying his moves. Everybody was having a great time. And he's like, oh, good, good, good. I think I still have a chance. Until suddenly, his loincloth falls off. And so immediately, he grabs whatever that is nearby, which happens to be Toto the cat. He covers his bits and he ran out of the room. The next day, of course, he does not want to go to work. He thinks that he's going to get fired. And he tries to keep a low profile. He tried to sneak into his office, but he got stopped by Octavia. Octavia called him into her office and say, you know what? The shareholders, the partners, they are so impressed with you. You got it. We are going to promote you and you are going to be our next chair for the diversity committee. And he's like, okay, okay, diversity committee. Chair, wait, chair, does that mean I'm I'm going to be a partner? Because all chairs or for all committees are always partners. And she's like, no, no, not quite yet. Not quite yet. But, you know, you'll be on your way because what we need is to show the world that our law firm cares so, so, so much about the community, especially the Black community. So you are the perfect person for that. And so we need you to help us demonstrate that, especially to the hospital, PHH, because we want that contract. And they are looking at us, but they are kind of like wondering, you know, how much we care about the community. And so we need to show them that we do. And if you and I can win that contract, we're going to be on the top of the world. We are going to be CEO for this company. You are going to, of course, become a partner and get promoted. And all the while, our narrator is thinking about Nigel. If he make this happen, then he will be able to pay for his son's procedure. What procedure, you ask? Well, Nigel is biracial. Our narrator's wife is white. And Nigel is born with a birthmark right near his eye. It started off with just this tiny little black dot. But the birthmark has been growing along with Nigel. And it's getting bigger and bigger. Our narrator is really worried that this birthmark is going to swallow his son up. Because he noticed what people see whenever they look at Nigel. They get shocked by the birthmark. And he is so worried that this is going to be the kind of treatment that his son will get forever and ever in his life. And as he said, 
that he wants to make sure that his son does not get the same kind of treatment that he gets, the same kind of treatment that his father gets. Because all the hats that he's trying to encourage his son to wear or the growing hair doesn't help. They're all temporary. He even bought whitening cream to try to cover up the skin, even when his son tells him this stuff burns. So he needs a permanent solution. And there is a new medical procedure, demelanization surgery, that can completely erase that blackness from his son so that nobody will ever know that his son is black, so that nobody will walk to the other side of the street and clutching their purses as his son walks by, that nobody will follow his son around in the shop, that no cops will stop him, that they don't have to be mindful of being polite and saying thank you and saying please. He does not want that for his son and he thinks that this surgery will help. And so, diversity chair it is. Maurice Carlos Ruffin shows us what it's like to live as a Black person in America in his debut novel, We Cast a Shadow. And as non-Black readers like us, we're forced to confront the privileges that we have in our life. The book is frequently compared to Paul Betty's The Sell Out, which I haven't read yet, but I got a copy. It's on my list. And it's often categorized as satire and is taking today's reality and exaggerating it. And it's supposed to be set kind of like in a near future. I, I wouldn't go so far as saying it's dystopian future, but definitely a little bit alternative America. But it feels very similar to our world. There are a lot more restrictions and rules for Black people. There's so many more like leeway given to the cops in the name of keeping everyone safe. There are a lot more deportation happening. The physical walls that are built around Black communities get higher and higher every day. But it's a different kind of satire because it doesn't feel far-fetched, sadly. And Ruffin doesn't also give us that luxury of distance. It feels very immediate and so very, very powerful because it feels like the world that we know and the world that we live in, and it's not that far off. Ruffin is definitely poking fun at the ridiculousness of it all. And on a sentence level, there's a lot of really funny sentences there. And so many of the lines is like, I need to highlight this because, you know, we talked about highlighting before, but I can because it's a physical book that we have. But it's not absurd the way a lot of satire is. And our narrator is never a caricature. But first, when we met our narrator, we understand, we can feel his pain. We can see where he's coming from and how he's being treated and his family history and why he thinks the way he does. And we understand how he does not want that for his child and we have sympathy for him. But as the story progresses, you can realize that this love for his son is turning into this extreme measure that he's willing to take. And it's totally messed up, but yet because there was that understanding that you have kind of established between the reader and the character that you can see him, how he's stuck in this cycle of, you know, that he's living with systemic racism, he's living with the intergenerational trauma and, and his response to it, even if it is so messed up, it still feels very genuine. It feels very real. And Ruffin never makes a comment, makes an observation or write any sentence just to show that, oh, you know, look at how clever I am. It's never like that. It's, it's genuinely scary stuff that he writes, yet it is so powerful. And it is an unnamed narrator. We have a talk before about unnamed narrator, but this is callback to The Invisible Man by Ralph Ellison, whereas in Ellison's story, their main character, also unnamed, is someone who white people refuse to see him. Whereas in this case, it is a character, he, he said he's unnamed. And in the first sentence, he said, my name doesn't matter. All you need to know that is I'm a phantom. I'm a figment. And is someone who wishes to be invisible, to wishes that his son and him can all blend in with the white folks. But it's not just all grim and it's all dark because we have that counterpoint in Nigel. What Nigel shows us is a different way, a different way of dealing with this, that rather than assimilation, rather than trying to be whiter than the white folks, trying to listen to Beach Boys like our, our name narrator is on every car ride, 
you don't have to be that way. There is a different way, and Nigel is showing us that. And so it is such an a powerful story. Um, it really helps, I think, for all of us to reflect on sort of the world that we lived in, reflect, like I said, on our privileges. Um, and so I am so excited to see uh, what else Maurice Carlos Ruffin does. He has a short story collection that I think believe that came out last year. So I'm going to be picking that up. So this is We Cast a Shadow. Fantastic. Thank you, Virginia. All right. As a way of like sneaking in another five books and authors, I'm going to ask our existential question of which Black author or perhaps book written by a Black author do you think that everyone should read? So let's pick on Sadie. I sense that that was going to happen. I feel like I set everyone up to be super curious about what book I was going to mention. So this book is not necessarily seen as a classic of Black literature, but it is a book that I absolutely adore. Actually, I know for a fact that not everyone who has read this book agrees with this um, this love of it, but I think that it is a wonderful book if you like YA, if you like fantasy, if you <laughs> think Korean has figured it out. Um, so yeah, so this is Children of Blood and Bone by Tomi Adiemi. Um, so yes, I can see Virginia shaking her head. I know it was not Virginia's favorite book, but I absolutely loved it. It kind of just checked off all of the boxes for me that I really like in a book. It had magic. It had romance, sometimes ill-timed romance. I understand that comment. I do. Um, it had adventure. It had kind of changing of allegiances, enemies to friends, to lovers, to all of that kind of fun uh, fun stuff. So this is a book that takes place in a fictionalized world, um, but a fictionalized pre-colonial African country called Arisha. And this is a world where 11 years ago, magic had been wiped out of the world before that magic was very prevalent. But the people in charge decided that it was dangerous and they were going to wipe it and everybody who did magic out of the world. So now we are um, 11 years after that and we are following Zeli. And Zeli is the daughter of a magi who had been killed because of her powers. And Zeli believes that she might have them, but because magic has been wiped out, she does not have access to it. I know this is not a full description of the book. This is just our existential question, so I won't go into too, too much more detail. But Zelly learns that uh, there's a way to bring her magic back. And working with an unlikely ally, uh, the princess of this uh, country, uh, they decide to try to bring magic back into this world. Uh, so yes, yeah, so that is Children of Blood and Bone. I think that it is a wonderful book. It is definitely not for everyone, uh, but if you do like YA, <laughs> fantasy, romance, um, I think that it's a great book. And that's by Tomi Adiemi. I just argue that, you know, like running away in the middle of the jungle is maybe not the best time for romance, but that that could just be me. I will give you that. I will 100% give you that. Thank you. <laughs> just saying. All right, uh, Gabriel, what about you? So I think the book that I am choosing for this is actually one I haven't read yet, but it's been on my to-read list for a long time. It's something that I really think that I should read. I think that everybody should read. And so that's why I'm going with it, even though I can't maybe provide the very in-depth, strong breakdown that Sadie just gave us on her book. And I mine is very much part of like sort of that classic literature canon. That's why I wanted to read it. I think that's why I think everybody should read it. And it is Sister Outsider by Audrey Lord. I think that's how you say the first name, uh, because it's it's one of those names that I have seen quotes from for so long. And they're always like these amazing philosophical kind of thought provoking things whenever I see them. And that's one of the reasons why it's come up again and again is, oh, yes, I should read this. I should read this. My understanding is that it's partially like essays, speeches, and even potentially, I don't know if it's actually poetry, but definitely almost reads like poetry sometimes to me when I'm seeing seeing it quoted. But she's a well-known activist, not only in like the Black community, but also in the queer community. And a lot of her stuff involves kind of the intersectionality of her various identities and the ways that different forces in society kind of act, whether that be class or age or sexuality, race, all of these things. And so even though I can't necessarily talk about the... Uh, maybe the things that people really love or really hate about it. I do think that it's important enough that I 
Like I've seen it written on walls. I've seen it written in bathroom stalls. I've seen it written everywhere. So I think in terms of the influence, it's really out there. And so I feel like it's probably worth it for people to look into it if you haven't already. Again, such an important figure. And I think probably a bit more accessible than some of the other stuff that I was thinking of in terms of really um, important works because it was written in the like 70s and 80s versus a lot of the stuff that like I've written or sorry, I've read from from earlier or anything like that. So I think this is a really good one for people to pick up. Nice. I like that you also included yourself in like <laughs> that everyone should read, including me. Nice, nice, nice. All right, Virginia, what about you? It's the same with Gabriel is a book that I have. I'm reading currently reading right now. So it's definitely a book that I'm recommending to myself also. There's so many answers, Corinne. What like what kind of question is this? But the first book that came to my mind is actually How Long Until Black Future Month, because that was the one that kind of like because of the title, I just feel like that everybody should read. And NK Jemison is great. And then there was a few other ones that I'm gonna save for some future episodes because we're gonna be talking about that. So I'm gonna save for those. But I think I will have to go with what I just mentioned, The Invisible Man by Ralph Allison. It's a book that keep coming up when I'm reading other books and it's being referenced a lot. Like I think that's, a, a, you know, it's on every, like whenever you look up like influential Black authors, like that probably comes up all the time. And I am actually listening to the audiobook right now. Where's Fiona? And it's by Joe Morton and it is a fantastic. It's such a great narrator. Like does, I can song out everything because it's so, so good. So I think I think that would be my pick, even though same like Gabriel, I haven't read it yet. I'm reading it, working on it. There you go. Nice. Um, I'm also going to go classic. I'm going to say uh, Things Fall Apart by Chinua Achebe. Uh, which blew my mind the first time I read it, like genuinely blew my mind. It was when I was first kind of getting into reading some literary fiction. I was like, oh, some of this is like bad. Some of this is really bad and unreadable. And then I came across this book and it not only was it, it, it's one of those books that you can kind of see as like a crossroads in your life that when you get to it, you see the world a different way than than before you read it. And so that that was one of the books for me that kind of just like branched my mind off in a different way of thinking of it. It's a classic. It was written in 1958, but my gosh, does it hold up? The writing is so good. And you just want to take everyone by the shoulders and be like, I understand what you're doing and why you're doing it. But why are you doing it? Um, yeah, it, it's it's a it's a a legendary book for a reason, um, but still very, very readable. And I would definitely recommend that everyone everyone pick it up. All right, Mark, what about you? So mine is also going to be a somewhat classic, Decolonizing the Mind by uh, Nikuji Wationgo. Always say his name wrong every single time I say it. So sorry about that. Tiongo is a, both a fiction and nonfiction writer. I talked about one of his fiction works previously on the podcast last year on the, I believe it was the rabbit hole episode, I want to say. And I know Virginia has read a little bit of his work. I just find Tiongo to be a very fascinating writer because he, both not from fiction and nonfiction, but in this particular work, I think people should read it because in Canada, we often now talk about decolonization, lang indigenous languages, and a lot of these related issues. And Tiongo is very much talking about this from an African perspective as a Kenyan, as native language of Gikuyu, how he came to his language um, later on after writing in English for a very long time, and the different relationships he's had with his language and English, as well as the importance of having that language for his people, for their culture, for their ideas, their traditions, and their concepts and things like that, that are not present in English, that get erased in English, and how English is, was essentially imposed on people. And the importance of like sort of reclaiming their languages through artistic creation and literature, theater, and things like that. So I think if anyone's interested in that from like the Canadian Indigenous perspective, should also read this work from a, an African perspective, African Indigenous, and the role of colonization in Africa as well. Awesome! Thank you so much. I, I again, it was an excuse to sneak in a couple more authors and a couple more books. Um, but of course, we're always happy to give more recommendations and there are more recommendations on our website. But speaking of the books that we're going to talk about for longer, we are going to swing over to uh, Gabriel. All right. So for Black History Month this year, I chose another award-winning book. So We've got a couple of maybe more mainstream books that we're talking about on the podcast this week. And I chose What Storm, What Thunder by Miriam J. Chansey. So this book was awarded a 2022 American Book Award by the Before Columbus Foundation, uh, named Best Book of 2021 by a number of different news outlets. 
And one of her previous novels, uh, Chansey's previous novels, The Loneliness of Angels, won the Guyana Prize in the Literature Caribbean Award for Best Fiction. And alongside novels, she also writes literary criticism. She's um, she's a scholar. She does a few other things, so not just fiction. She's a Haitian-Canadian-American author, and she was actually born in Port-au-Prince. And What Storm, What Thunder, the book, is set in Haiti around the time of the devastating earthquake that hit the island in 2010. Well, it's history. It's it's not distant history. It's still within the last couple decades, and it's still something that you you do see some of the effects even to this day. And I think it's an interesting perspective on it, especially for a lot of us. It might be something that we saw in the news. It might be something that we read about or heard down the pipeline, different stories about. And seeing it from the perspective of, albeit fictional accounts of people who lived with it, definitely accounts that are still very much based on the kind of lived experience of people dealing with the earthquake. So the book is written from multiple perspectives. It's not just a single narrative, and it can sort of be broadly thought of as before and after the earthquake. The natural disruption that it is kind of occurs in each of the characters' lives during their segment of the book. So it's not all horrific. It is an intense read, but a lot of the focus is really on like the resiliency and community. There's a lot of nuance in each of the stories because, again, this is one of those ones that's kind of trying to be realistic in all aspects of it. It's not all going to be horrible. There are going to be moments like of light shining through. But at the same time, it's about a traumatic event, even if they're not necessarily defined by that trauma. A lot of the characters in the book are also related, often by blood. But even when they're not actually blood relatives, they're all wrapped up in each other's lives. And I'm not going to go through all of the perspectives, but I am going to talk about some of the really prevalent ones and the ones that are really interesting. So the character who strings together all of the narratives is a woman from the market. And she's called Malu, who kind of watches all of them and connects all of them. She's not quite omnipotent narrator. It's more someone who can see everything, who watches everything, who has a very strong pulse on the community. And so knows a lot of people, especially because the market, just in general, as a, as a meeting place, is, is a very, it's a location that I think has a lot of meaning and theme anyway. So she is there at the earthquake. And she's one of the people who is even like pulling people out from the rubble, who's sitting near people as they're trapped within, who is um, doing all of these different acts of service at the same time, and really witnessing what the earthquake does to people, not just to herself, but to the people around her. And so I think her account uh, as a bookend of the perspectives in the novel is really, is really interesting. And I think it's really kind of poignant. Or one of the stories that stuck out to me anyway is the story of Sarah, who is a mother who lost her children in the earthquake. She is suffering from a lot of different things. But one of the big things is that in the wake of this, her husband leaves her and she's actually forced to relocate to a camp for those who need shelter after the natural disaster. And like many of the people that end up in these camps, she encounters poverty, she encounters violence, and in general, just incredibly unsafe living conditions. Oliver, her husband, also has a chapter later in the story that kind of provides some perspective as to why he left and how their lives are affected by the loss of their children and the sort of experience of being unable to do something when they are so close by, but just having to sort of move past that and move on from that. And I thought that was, I think, one of the most... I guess, moving of the different stories, although they are, again, they all have sort of their ups and downs, but it's a very real one. And I think it's one that is maybe closer to some of the stories that we expect to come out of the earthquake or that we heard about, mostly because of how horrible it was. But another character who has a, a bit of a different perspective uh, is Sonia. And she's a call girl who she gets fresh mangoes and avocados from Malu and she gives them uh, to the people who run the hotel that she works out of. She wants to become someone's mistress so that she can have wealth and security, but she doesn't have to have the commitment or the children. And so 
She's thinking ahead. She knows what she wants. She's a businesswoman. She's seen what can happen to people. Unfortunately, her sister Tafia suffered at the hands of men in a way that she doesn't really, she doesn't want to have happen to her. And Sonia wants to make sure that when people try to take something for her, they pay for it. So I think that she's another very interesting character. She's someone who is also connected to the community in a very different way than maybe Malu or any of the other sort of perspectives because she, she's she got kind of an economic pulse on it in the way that some of the more traditional businessmen characters in this one don't. And I thought that was really interesting. She kind of warned her sister to like stay away from a lot of things that unfortunately she can't avoid later when she's in um, relocation camps as well. And she also has actually another character who isn't related by blood, but kind of functions as her business partner, which is um, a boy named Yudane. And he's kind of an orphan with ambitions like hers. He wants to escape the island. They both want to live elsewhere. They want this better life. It's interesting because they don't actually have a love story, even though I kind of thought that was how the book was going to go. But they're almost like platonic life partners. And they are really like, trying to live a better life together. And they are sort of an interesting dynamic to read. Another story, like I said, we have different types of businessmen in this one, is Malu's son, Richard, who's an opportunistic businessman who kind of takes advantage of those left destitute by the earthquake, kind of monopolizes a lot of the resources that they need to survive. He's particularly cruel. He's, I'm not going to spoil it, but he gets his just desserts in a very kind of fun way. And so you get to see the different ways that I guess people can both make the best out of the situation and also make people's lives quite a bit worse, depending. Richard's daughter, Anne, actually works for an NGO in Rwanda. And she returns after seeing the devastation that this earthquake has caused to her community. She's an architect and she kind of works with building. And she really wants to help out, but she's kind of stymied by the bureaucracy and the tragedy that she feels incredibly dissociated from because her community and like all the places that she knew changed while she was away. And they just didn't, they didn't just change in the way that like when you come back, it feels strange and nostalgic and not quite your home. Like they changed in a very, very real physical sense. And she feels kind of the disruption of the earthquake and the trauma of the earthquake without quite feeling like she's earned it in some ways. It's it's an interesting perspective. There's also another perspective that I won't quite go into who actually just doesn't doesn't live in Haiti at all at the time of the earthquake and is just hearing about it through the news and is kind of grappling with his own questions of what would home look like if I were to go back and is there a home to go back to? The earthquake, like I said, it appears in all of these stories, like a before and after. It's really an event that connects the whole community, despite these very different experiences and lives that they lead and very different um, approaches to their own their own trauma, their own experiences, their own philosophies. I think it was it was a very emotional and interesting portrait of the lives of these Haitian characters living post-natural disaster. And not in a causing anyone alarm way, but I think it was interesting to read because this is the first time that I've lived in a province in which an earthquake is a very real potential and understanding the ways in which communities are disrupted by these natural disasters in very social realities, but also in the environment as well. And I think it was one that if you are interested in those more human stories, I think it's worth it. I think going over the plot from a very removed perspective makes it feel much sadder than it is because it is a sad book, but it's it's one that I think is grounded enough that it feels realistic. It's not so much making a spectacle out of things, but the specter of the earthquake, I think, is so big that is more the spectacle than anything else. So if you're interested in maybe more modern history, if you're interested in a looking at uh, an entire community through different lens and just kind of getting maybe an idea of kind of the little bits of Haitian culture, there were definitely uh, moments where I I learned something or I knew that 
there was uh, like a cultural difference, but it wasn't one that was like completely alienating because she's very good at putting things in language that would be easy for anyone to understand or kind of explaining different values and things like that. And so I thought it was very interesting. And I thought that it was something that I wouldn't normally pick up, but I was glad that I did. So that is What Storm, What Thunder by Miriam J. H. Nancy. Thank you, Gabriel. Yeah, I wouldn't have pegged that as a Gabriel pick, but the more you kind of talked about it, it, it does seem like a good fit for you. Um, all right. So we move to our our very last selection with Sadie. Sadie, do you have a YA fantasy for us? I do not. <laughs> I know. I know. Shocking. Absolutely shocking. Uh, no. So I, I actually give credit to Kareen for a bit of a shift in my reading since I have been in this position in a good way, in a very good way. Kareen, you have encouraged me and suggested some books in the mystery genre. So I have started reading more mystery books. So the book that I am recommending is a mystery book and it's an adult mystery book. There is sometimes a crossover with YA mystery, but this one is not. This is an adult mystery book. And this book takes us back to the 1920s. Now, I have always loved the 1920s as a decade, as looking back on it, it was a time that I always thought would be really fun to live in. It was kind of, you have the the glamour, the flashiness. Yes, you might not have been able to drink in some places, but you got around that. You could you could find the places to have fun. There was the Charleston. There was kind of all of these really fun um, aspects of the 1920s that have always really appealed to me. When I was in uh, college studying musical theater, we did a show that took place in the 1920s, and it was just one of the funnest shows that I've ever been in. And so I think that has a lot to do with my love of the 1920s. And I think that a lot of people look back on the 1920s in a similar way. And what the author of this book uh, actually says is that a lot of people look back on the 1920s with a bit of rose-colored glasses. And so what our author, Nikisa Afia, set out to do with this book was provide a different perspective, a different idea of what the 1920s was, and more specifically, what the 1920s was for a young Black woman when you're living in Harlem in the 1920s. So our book is called Dead, Dead Girls. It's the book I'm talking about by Nikisa Afia. And this is uh, Afia's debut novel. I would say that there are parts of it where you can tell that it is her first book. I think that the story reads really, really well. I think that it's really exciting. It pulls you in, but she's still kind of finding her feet. So that's one thing I will say, but I think that it is worth the read. And I think that she's going to continue writing this series and I will continue reading it because it is it kind of pulls you in in, in a way that um, that makes you want to keep reading it. So Dead Dead Girls tells the story of Louise Lloyd. And Louise is in her 20s, and she's living in Harlem, and she's doing her best to forget something that happened to her when she was a teenager. Uh, so 10 years earlier, in 1916, Louise was kidnapped. She was walking home one night. It was cold. She had her jacket kind of pulled up around her. She's grabbed from behind, and she's kidnapped and thrown into a room with a group of other young Black women. Now, Louise is not the kind of person who's just going to sit there and let this happen. So when the kidnapper is out of the room, she works on getting her hands untied. And when he comes back in, she fights back and she helps everybody escape. Not too much time is spent talking about her kidnapping in the book, but it does definitely set the scene and set the tone for our whole story and for who Louise is as a person. Because ever since Louise was kidnapped, she has gotten the title of Harlem's hero. And she hates it. She absolutely hates it. She has been trying her best for the last 10 years to run away from the title of Harlem's hero. Anytime anyone finds out who she is, they look at her differently. They think that she's this great person who's set out to do all these wonderful things. When in reality, she's just a young 25-year-old woman who's just trying to get by. So to kind of move herself away from that, she focuses on her life. And she has a good life. 
She is young. She is in love. She works at a cafe during the day and she goes to a speakeasy at night and dances, which is her absolute favorite thing in the entire world. She just loves, loves, loves to dance. And so she goes there with Rosa Maria, her best friend and her secret girlfriend, and Rosa Maria's twin brother, Raphael, who is one of the bartenders at the Zodiac Club. He sneaks them free drinks, and they just dance the whole night, and she loves it. And then in the morning, she goes to work at Maggie's Cafe, and she has interactions with people in the community. Maggie is a pillar of the community. Her cafe has been around for a very long time, and it's just, it's a good, good life, and Louise is happy. That is until one morning when she's on her way to work, her and Rosa Maria are heading to the cafe after a night of dancing and there's a body in front of the cafe and it is the body of a young black woman. They don't know who she is. They've never met her before, but she's wearing the uniform of the speakeasy that is run in the basement of the cafe at night. And so they learn that she is a staff member, she is a dancer, she is an entertainer of the speakeasy in the basement of Maggie's Cafe. Louise is distraught. Louise doesn't quite know how to react to this. Uh, The police come, the police, the detectives come, they say that they will do their best to find out who killed this woman. But Louise knows they're white police officers, it's a black woman, they're not really going to do anything. So that night, she's at the Zodiac with Raphael, and she watches a police officer who is arresting another young Black woman, and she just can't hold it in anymore. So she races over, and she wrestles this woman away from this police officer, and she stands up to him and basically says, this woman is not doing anything wrong. What are you doing? You have no right to arrest her. Naturally, the police officer does not take this very well, and in retaliation, Louise punches him. Probably not the best thing for her to do in the moment. She is arrested. She is put into a cell overnight. She knows that there's probably no way out of this. She was caught drinking. She was caught at a speakeasy and she punched a police officer. It's not going to go well for her. The police officer is not a very nice man. Uh, He's a young white cop. He is racist. He speaks down to her. He knows that he has power over her in this situation. And he knows that no matter what he chooses to do, he will get away with it. So morning comes after Louise is kept in the cell and she's brought into a detective's office. Now, this detective was the same detective that was on scene the morning where they found the young woman. And he gives her a choice. He says, we can make an example of you and you can go to jail for punching this cop or you can help us solve these murders. So this is not the first, this is the third in a line of murders of young black women in Harlem and they need help. They need somebody who is in the community, who knows these people, who knows the areas, who can be inconspicuous, as it were, in these spaces. And they look to Louise to be that person. She doesn't really have another choice. So Louise agrees to help with the case. Before long, she finds that she is caught up in this case in a way that she did not think that she would be. It starts connecting to her past in ways that she didn't expect, and it starts her wondering what exactly she has gotten herself into. Uh, So I won't tell you too much more, but like I said, it is uh, a debut novel. I think it's a really great debut novel. It pulls you in. I was reading that Nikesa Fia is a huge fan of kind of classic murder mysteries, but she found that the only way that she was going to see herself in one of these murder mysteries was to write it herself. So that is what she has done. She has written herself into Dead Dead Girls. And this is her kind of tribute to to all the young Black women who might want to see themselves in those predominantly white mystery stories that are often out there. Fantastic. Thank you so much, Sadie. Love a mystery convert. So proud. I'm so proud. So happy. 
Um, so thank you so much, everyone, for joining us for our five, although technically we stuck in another five, so it's 10, um, 10 recommendations of books and authors for you to check out for Black History Month or Black Future Month. And we are so thankful that you joined us and are celebrating these authors with us. And although it is February and it is a special month uh, to kind of recognize the contributions and real history of uh, Black people in North America, we encourage you to keep this up for the rest of the year to make sure those shelves of yours are diverse, those to-be-read piles have many, many, many voices in them, and to enjoy all of these fantastic authors that we have access to. So thank you very much, everyone, and have a wonderful read. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening. If you like our show, please tell a fellow book lover about it. You can find a list of all the books we discussed in our show notes. Join us next week for another fun book chat. Until then, keep it fictional. Mm-hmm.